You may be seated. took me three years to figure out how to not get that caught in my microphone, but let's pray. Father God, um, we pray this morning, um, well, thank you, Father, for the men's retreat. Um, thank you for those who were able to go and that they were able to uh, grow and be challenged and be shaped in Christ and build relation with one another. And we pray, Father, um, that that um, builds in our community um, uh, a benefit that lasts and is enduring uh, for the sake of the name of Jesus. Father, we pray for um, this storm that uh, Ophelia that has uh, hit the United States and uh, has continued to bring rain up the coast and, and pray for safety. Pray for security for Americans. Pray for your churches to be places of support, of love, of care, concern, and gospel faithfulness in the midst of um, some difficult seasons. Father, we pray for uh, the Jewish people today as uh, this evening uh, they prepare to begin their celebration of Yom Kippur. Um, and yet, uh, there is no tabernacle, and there, is, and there is no temple, and there is no high priest, and there is no goat to remove their sins far from the community, and there is no goat to make atonement. Father, we thank you that we have a great high priest who has entered into the perfect tabernacle. Not a pattern or a shadow of the one in heaven, but the one in heaven itself. And he sits because he has completed his work. We pray, Father, that as they read those old passages, as they contemplate on their meaning and their significance, that they would see how those scriptures point to Jesus Christ as a redeemer, as their atonement, as their rescuer, and they might find eternal life in him. We pray, Father, that you help us to make sense of your word. And that it would not be dry to us, but that it would come alive in our hearts. That we might really be the people of your word. We know that in your words are life. And we pray that we would taste it well. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're in Genesis chapter 2. Uh, if you're not aware, um, we're in a new series for the fall. There are sermon cards at the back if you want to follow along. Uh, mostly we'll be in Genesis this fall. Uh, a few messages on, on some different topics and then something 
more Christmas related as we get closer to Christmas. But uh, right now we're in Genesis chapter 2 and we're going to start in verse 4. So you can open any Bible and just click over a couple pages. But uh, do what you do to get to Genesis chapter 2. And I'm going to start in verse 4 and move down to the uh, end of the chapter. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So have you ever asked yourself what you're here for or what it's all about? Well, of course you have. That's the theme of every song of teenage angst, isn't it? I mean, if you, you pick a decade, pick a year, pick a genre, uh, everyone from Andrew Lloyd Webber to Motorhead to Iron Maiden to Run DMC to Diana Ross Rush, Pixies, Monty Python, Judy Garland, 
outcast have had us seen those questions. Comparatively few artists, though, have actually been able to give us an answer to those questions. Prince suggested it was love. A number of others have posited the hokey pokey. But Genesis 2, 4 through 25, provides what is the most fundamental articulation of what you are here for, what I am here for, what it's all about. In Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, we saw the magnificence and the majesty of this God who created the universe and everything in it. Human beings come in for a passing mention at the capstone of God's created work. But God is far and away the focus of that story. But in our passage this morning, human beings are introduced in much more detail. For the first time, a human does something. For the first time, a human speaks. And God is still the most important person in the account. But he engages with human beings and enters into relationship with human beings. So we unpack these 22 verses, we'll be given a picture of what we're here for, what it's all about. And it's a picture that I think is developed through five C's, uh, creation, care, cultivation, commandment, and companionship. Creation, care, cultivation, commandment, and companionship. But before we get there, I, I want to do a little mind diffusal again. I, I did my best to walk through a bit of a minefield in Genesis 1-1 through 2-3 last week, and I, I'm going to do my best to do the same today. Uh, last week, I tackled a few issues as they came up in the text, and this time I'm going to try to diffuse a couple big minds just up front, because some of those discussions also will help us better understand the passage as a whole. And, and it'll give us a little bit of space to touch on a couple other background issues um, along that way. So let's diffuse a couple minds. Um, first, let's tackle the big one. Is this history? To answer that question, let's look at verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens, made the earth and the heavens. This verse is important because it tells us that we're in a new section of the book of Genesis. If you want to understand the book of Genesis really deeply, uh, you need to pay attention to this phrase. These are the generations of. Here they are. Genesis 6-9, these are the generations of Noah. Genesis 10-1, these are the generations of the sons of Noah. Genesis 11:10. These are the generations of Shem. Genesis 11:27. These are the generations of Terah. Genesis 25:12. These are the generations of Ishmael. Genesis 25:19. These are the generations of Isaac. Genesis 36:1. These are the generations of Esau. That one gets repeated eight verses later. And then Genesis 37:2. These are the generations of Jacob. You can write all those down, or you can just... It, it's a major heading in your Bible. You can't miss it. Uh, you could Google search generations Bible, and, and it's going to come up. But Genesis 
1, 1 through 2, 3 then is sort of like an introduction to the entire book, like a prologue. And then it's followed by nine major divisions. And each of those generations headings is followed by a telling of the lives of real flesh and blood people, how they lived, what they accomplished, how they struggled, how they died. They exist in real places within cultural contexts that resonate with what we know from archaeology and other ancient accounts. So when we see the same phrase in Genesis 2-4, it tells us that we're dealing with something of the same character. Is that history? Well, it's not clear that our modern category of history writing was a genre that our ancient ancestors would have been familiar with. So it depends what you're asking. If when we call it history, we mean, does this passage intend to write about things that really happened? Then it's history. If when we say this, we mean that the passage intends to communicate truth with no mix of error, then it's history. But if you expect to find this story laid out like one of the top sellers on Amazon's list of history books, you're, you're going to be disappointed. But we can see this, this concern for concrete and, and real things when we consider the, the description of the geography of Eden. Everyone always wants to know where Eden is. And our, our text places Eden in the east, probably meaning east of Israel, and describes a river flowing through Eden so that it divides into four, the Tigris, the Euphrates, which we know well, the Pishon and the Gihon, which we don't know. Those have been lost to history. Um, it describes the courses of those rivers, though, in context with other concrete place names like Havilah and Kush. And, and it even describes the, the rich gemstones and uh, metal deposits of some of the land. Uh, and we can't identify this exact confluence of features anymore today, but that's not really the point. The point is that the author and the readers would have placed these events in a real place, on a real earth, at a real time. Now, every one of these these are the generations of passages is about a name. Noah, Shem, Terah, Jacob. Except this one. This one is, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. The heading basically says, okay, so you've heard, I've told you about how God created the universe. Now, let me tell you what came of that creation. And that's the account we're concerned about here. And since we don't, by the way, have another heading like this until about a, th about a third of the way into chapter 6, we need to recognize this is just part of a much longer section. And, and we need to read and interpret Genesis 2, 4 through Genesis 6, 8. 
as part of one extended section. And I just mention that because I think we tend to, especially in these early chapters, read them as discrete units that are sort of disconnected from each other. Maybe you don't, but I, I, I think sometimes we have a tendency to. There's the garden, and then there's that fall story, and then there's that story of Cain and Abel, and then there's that long genealogy that we skip, and then there's that weird story at the start of chapter 6. But these are all really connected. And that's especially true of, of 2, 4 through the end of chapter 3. In fact, um, there would be a lot of good reasons to not divide this up like I'm doing and, and leaving chapter 3 for next week. Um, but I'm going to try to draw out some of those connections between those next week. Um, if you're following along, by the way, with, with the sermon cards and, and seeing how we've broken this series up, essentially we are working through the first two of those, these are the generations of sections of the book of Genesis. And then we'll leave those other ones for another day, Lord willing. Another mine. Um, what about evolution? Maybe I'll just blow myself up on that one. Um, but some of you are no doubt wondering, what, what does this passage have to do with evolution? And look, it's an enormous discussion. Might be a great like evening lecture series or something, but our focus needs to be on understanding and applying the Word of God. Genesis is, is not about disproving evolution, and it's not a bunch of myths that modern science has debunked. Both of those categories are really too narrow for what is going on in this book. So let me let me just offer two caveats. One to those who might tend toward an extreme in one camp or another. If you tend to accept some variation of uh, evolutionary theory, and, and you consider yourself a Christian, then you need to hold that view in a way that still allows you to take Scripture seriously. So if you start approaching the text, um, particularly these early chapters, is a, a bunch of myths that you can reinterpret to your fancy, like a freshman film class debating a Tarantino flick, uh, that's not going to cut it. And that means, among other things, your convictions need to leave room for God doing something fantastic and something miraculous which is creating us in his image. It makes us unique. It gives us dignity. It gives us value. It's a stake in the ground. It is a line of demarcation for faithfulness. On the other hand, if you tend to reject any evolutionary theory outright, you need to hold that view with a certain level of intellectual humility, knowing that Christians much smarter than me and probably a few of them smarter than you uh, have disagreed with you. So make sure that your convictions on these issues don't 
label as heretics luminaries like uh, J.I. Packer, who helped draft the famous Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, but kept an open mind on this issue. Or Francis Collins, an evangelical Christian, one of the most important scientists and science thinkers of the late 20th century and early 21st century, who believes Jesus rose from the dead and also sequenced the human genome and thinks evolution is real. So don't let your insistence on this issue keep you from the charity and kindness and love that you owe your fellow Christians. It's a complicated issue. But those are our two biggest minds, I think, in this passage. And if there's anything of me left, then let's, uh, let's turn our attention to these five C's of our passage. Creation, care, cultivation, commandment, and companionship. Now, the, the first of those is creation. Verses 5 through 6 give us an elaborate backdrop for our passage. It says that uh, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist, of, a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. That's a, that's a big setup. Uh, by the way, these, these verses are are one reason why some people think that there are two creation accounts. I could have made that another mind to diffuse here, but this idea that Genesis 1 tells one story of creation, and Genesis 2 tells a different story of creation. Um, And they think that because this passage seems to say that there were no plants until after God created human beings. But in Genesis chapter 1, human beings were created after plants. But that's a misunderstanding of the passage. And I think um, a a lot of it just stems from how Hebrew is using words like land and field and ground. Land is the same word as earth in in the stock phrase heaven and earth, but it, it probably has more of a sense of a piece of land, a geographic area, a general region in this passage, as it often does throughout the Bible. Uh, The field is the uncultivated outskirts where wild animals would live or where you might take your sheep and goats to graze. And the ground is usually a good soil that can be cultivated, that can be farmed, that can become productive. So all all of this is taking place, if if you remember some middle school geography, this is all taking place in what's been called the Fertile Crescent which is this, this, this crescent moon-shaped track of land in the Middle East where some of the first civilizations arose. And it was called fertile, not because it was particularly productive land. That's what I always thought, like in sixth grade or whatever. Uh, certainly not by modern standards. It was called fertile because by comparison to the mountains to the north and the desert to the south, you could actually grow something here. It was possible with a lot of effort to grow crops. It's a lot drier than Ohio, but it's not the Arabian desert either. 
And, and so this is the area of the world where we focus our attention. And there's, there's no vegetation at the beginning of this passage. And, and there were two reasons given for that. God hadn't brought rains on that land, and God didn't have a man to work the farmable land. It wasn't without moisture, though. Our text says a mist used to water the ground, the farmable ground. And that might not be the best translation. Uh, I've been a little more persuaded that this, the idea is that there was uh, uh, underground waters uh, that, that provided dampness, probably from a spring, so an underground spring that would have uh, watered the ground from time to time. So even without rain, maybe it could have produced something, but didn't have anyone to bring about those crops. Farming was hard work. It's always been hard work. But that was especially true in the Fertile Crescent before modern industry. And so God sets about to remedy this fundamental problem that's causing this lack of vegetation. No human beings. And God takes dust from the ground, that good soil that can be cultivated, and he makes a man. And there's a play on words here because the, the word for ground is Adama, and the word for man is Adam. So God made Adam from the Adama, almost as if they were made for each other. And then God gives this man life and he gives this man life in a way that is totally unique in the created order. God breathed into the man's nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. In Genesis 1, there's this emphasis on, on the nature of God's creation of man in his image. In Genesis 2, the emphasis is more on the mechanism of God's creation, his breath. Genesis 1 keeps our focus on the majesty of God's glorious nature, which is somehow reflected in us. And Genesis 2 adds a dimension of relationship. God and the man are almost touching. There's an intimacy and and a nearness to this account. Man was created for the earth, but he was also created for God. So that's the creation of of man. But there's another seed. There's something we need to say about the care of this man. So we have this particular land called Eden. And in this particular land called Eden, God plants a garden or maybe an orchard. And then God, not the man cultivates the ground and brings up every tree that produces something good to eat. And that's when we get this description of Eden having a river that waters the garden, a river which splits into four, carrying waters even to the rich treasures of Havilah. And so God needs or wants a man to cultivate the ground. And so what does he do? He chooses this lush, extravagant land called Eden. And from that good land, he chooses a chunk of ground particularly well-suited for cultivation. 
And on that ground, he grows up an already established garden full of every kind of fruit tree that a person could dream of. And included in that is the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm going to save discussion on those for next week, but they're obviously pretty sweet trees. And then only then, after God has created this rich bounty on rich ground, in a rich land, does he take the man and put him there. And mind you, this land is on a planet in a universe that God so meticulously created in chapter 1. And so it's worth pausing there to recognize how deeply God cared for his new creation. This one that he made in his image. In every way, he sets us up for success. He provided for our every need. We were protected, nestled in the safety of this little paradise on earth. And if we take these two things together, God's creation and God's care, we get the beginnings of the picture of what it's all about. The beginnings of this, what we're here for. It's not the full picture, but it's a start. The fact that God created means that we owe him our very existence. We literally were nothing without him. We're not the ones calling the shots. He is. And he clearly created us for a purpose. He had a purpose. He made us to fill that purpose. Something was missing, someone to cultivate the ground. So God created a person to cultivate the ground. That's not to say that each of us is called to be a farmer. It's a little deeper than that, we'll see. But at a minimum, our purpose is the product of God's prerogative. Our purpose is the product of God's prerogative. But God plans for us, and he provides for us. He deeply cares for us. And just like that first man had nothing to fear as he trusted God, so those who trust God have nothing to fear. As the Apostle, Paul, uh, excuse me, as the Apostle Peter wrote, we can cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for us. And Peter didn't have to get very far in his Old Testament to be able to make that case. God has given us good reason to trust him. As we move into the, the second half of this passage, though, we have three more C's to tackle. In verse 15, we read, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Immediately after placing the man in the garden, the man is given a job. And we might say that his job, quite simply, was to continue to cultivate the garden. But, but no, God has already done the hardest work. It's much easier to maintain a lawn than to start one. It is much easier to maintain a garden than to start one. All things being equal, the 20th year after establishing a soybean field is going to be easier than the first year. But if your idea of Eden was 
strolling around naked with nothing to do but talking to bluebirds and riding on lions and petting polar bears. You, You haven't been reading your Bible very carefully because human beings were made to work. Work is not evil. Work is not the enemy of this life. Work is not something we do for a few years and then lay down for the last 20 or 30. Work is part of our very created purpose. We are called to do stuff. And here's the cool thing. We're called to do the same types of things as God. God cultivated before he made the man a cultivator. Going back to Genesis 1, we saw that when God created human beings in his image, he told us to exercise dominion over the world and all the other living things. God was the ultimate king of creation. But as his image bearers, Wherever we went, we showed off a little bit of God. And our existence said to the universe, this too belongs to the great king. But in giving us dominion, we were being told to join God in his work of governing creation. We have dominion because he has ultimate dominion. Just like in Genesis 2, we cultivate because God is the ultimate cultivator. I don't think uh, it goes too far to suggest that this work of cultivation is a primary way we were to exercise our dominion. It wasn't a lording over of creation. It wasn't a, a, a raping of the earth of its resources. It was cultivating it, putting it to use thoughtfully, responsibly, carefully to create something beautiful that pointed to God. We're always under God, but we're like God. If we combine these these first two chapters and see them as a continuation rather than a conflict, I think the first human's job might have looked something like this. Maintain this perfect garden that I've established. And while you're at it, you and your descendants are going to take those wild, untamed fields out there and bring them into submission. This place isn't big enough for all of you. So here's the pattern. Now go make all the earth into Eden. Was only this first man supposed to have this intimate relationship with God? No. He would be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But in a perfect world, his descendants in North America and Norway would not be without this protecting care and presence. Under God's lordship, the man's descendants would make all of earth 
into a place where God and man would enjoy each other. So the picture of our purpose starts to become a little clearer. But God also gives the man a command. God tells the man, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, the details here have to be left for next week. But we need to note that God has given a command. He is king, after all, and a king usually has laws. A king governs. A king rules. And this command effectively puts a condition on the enjoyment of Eden because disobedience would lead to death. And this man was not going to be able to enjoy Eden if he's dead. So this is important. This is a big deal. But the condition is important for another reason. See, God doesn't merely give a command here without any explanation. He gives a specific reason for the command. Something bad will happen to you if you break this command. And that ties this commandment to faith. See, if the man trusts God, then he will believe that God is telling him the truth about this terrible fate. And that the fate is truly terrible. And so if the man completely trusts God, he's going to be obedient. But if the man does not trust God, if he thinks God is lying, or he thinks God is exaggerating, or if he thinks that God is not giving him the whole truth, then he might be given to disobey the command. If you consider a small child, old enough to understand most of what you tell her, but small enough to not fully understand the world, and you tell her, don't touch the hot stove. She might eventually become curious. Why shouldn't I touch the hot stove? It glows red. I like red. What's wrong with touching the hot stove? The hot stove creates all sorts of yummy things. And I would very much like to know how this hot stove creates yummy things more intimately. Curiosity can be a powerful motivator. But if you say, don't touch the hot stove because you'll get very, very hurt if you do, well, that changes things a bit, doesn't it? It makes the need for faith, for trust, much more obvious. Now the question is whether she really believes you that she'll get hurt. Can she trust you that that will happen? So the command implies a need for trust. And trust implies relationship. God is offering something. He's offering access to the garden and access to the tree of life, which are really access to him. But that access is built on a foundation of trust. If the man breaks trust with God by breaking the command, the relationship will be damaged, and the benefits of that relationship will be lost. But a relationship based on trust is the only relationship that's available. There was not going to be a perfect paradise 
where God just lets the man enjoy all the richest bounties without paying any mind to his creator, his caretaker. If you have children, or if you've been around children, there's probably three broad phases of your relationship that you're going to encounter, and hopefully the last one, very, very little, but when they're tiny, they're cute, they're lovable, and you care deeply about them, but you really don't have much relationship with them because there's no trust in either direction. And without some trust somewhere, there's not much relationship. I mean, you love having them around. Don't get me wrong. But the relationship is pretty weak. But as they get older, they begin to exercise trust, or at least experimenting with trust. And hopefully they find that you or their parents are safe as they do that, and they're able to put more and more trust in you. That's how children grow. And then a meaningful relationship begins to develop. A meaningful relationship develops as trust grows. But then that presents a choice, doesn't it? Because eventually, sooner than we often like, children develop an ability to also distrust. And sometimes we imperfect human beings, adults, earn that distrust. Sometimes it's just rebellion. And that rebellion is painful because it damages the relationship, right? And if you've experienced it, you, you, you know that it, it cuts the child off from full access to all of the benefits you could provide. Hopefully you can find a way to forgiveness and, and to restoration, but, but the lack of trust, still, it still leaves a mark. The relationship is never quite as perfect, quite as solid as it was early on. <laughs> and although that is painful... It's a necessary risk for a chance at a meaningful relationship. God wanted a meaningful relationship with the human being. And he wants that with each one of us. But there's one more C we need to hit before we can pull these pieces together. Something's missing when we put this passage side by side with day six from chapter one. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that a man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. In chapter one, six times, God saw that his work was good. And when he was complete, he found it all very good. But for the first time, something is not good. So it stands in stark contrast to everything we've read up until now, it is not good that man is alone. And God commits to making the man a helper fit for him. Here's an aside, but this one bothers me. The old language here, right, King James, is that God makes a helper meet for him. A helper meet for him. And, and that gives us the term help meet. 
That is meat. M E E T. Okay? It, it's, it's almost an outdated term. It means suited or appropriate form. But a help meat is H E L P M E E T. It is not H E L P M E A T. It is not a piece of meat that helps. And yet I have seen it written that way more times than I know what to do with. I think some dictionaries have just given up and said, like, it's, it's acceptable. But you want to talk about a sexist reading of Genesis 2. Women are not meat, okay? They're, they're meat, but they're not meat. Anyhow, it, it's such an antiquated term that many people assume the word isn't help meat because that doesn't make sense to them. They assume it's help mate. Which, has, which you'll find that in the dictionary now, as in a mate that helps, I guess. And, and, and that makes more sense, but it's still wrong. Uh, but whatever you do, just please don't talk about women as a hunk of flesh, okay? But the, the idea here is that God saw that Adam needed a helper that was perfectly suited for him. A helper that was like him in every essential way, but not so much like him that it was just a doubling of himself. He didn't need a clone, he needed a complement. And God forms all the animals and brings them to the man. I don't think that this is their original creation. I think God is creating the, the animals specially for this purpose, is how I, I read it. Um, and he brings them before the man to have him see what the man will call them. Pause on that too, because remember in chapter 1, God named the light and dark. God named the heavens, the seas, the earth, the day, the night. We noted that it demonstrated that God had authority over those things. Now, Adam is naming every one of the animals. So, in chapter 1, God told those first people, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And this man is beginning to exercise that dominion over the animals by naming them. He is in a position of authority over those animals. But none of them are a suitable helper. Now, now God knew what he was doing. The exercise was for the man who's now being called Adam, and, and, and it's for us. We need to know that we were created for companionship with other people, not with animals. I, I know today we have horse people, we have dog dads, we have cat moms, but that's not enough. You were made to be in relationship and to have companionship with other human beings. You cannot live out your purpose apart from other people. So God puts the man in a deep sleep. He does some spiritual surgery and creates a woman. And when the man awakes, he sees something like himself for the first time. And for the first time in Scripture, a human being speaks. He says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now this is a different word for man than the one the passage has been using up to this point. The word we mentioned before, Adam, means man, but usually more in the sense of 
human, mankind, human being. This word is ish, which is usually a male human. And there's another play on words going on. The word for woman sounds a lot like the word for man. It's isha. So just like God made Adam from the Adamah, God made Isha from Ish. And just like human beings were made for the earth, the woman was made for the man. She complemented him and completed him. Now, God had given the man a task. He'd given the man a job, but it was too big for him. To accomplish it, he would need a helper. That makes sense in the context of Genesis 1. After all, both male and female are made in God's image. And it is in their togetherness that they rule over creation. In fact, that part of being fruitful and multiplying is pretty much impossible without giving the man a helper. The idea of being a helper does not make the woman less. She's made of the same stuff as the man. She's made equally in the image of God, as is the man. The help she performs is at his side, not at his feet. And she's helping to do the same tasks. We don't have any division of labor mentioned here. I don't know what that would be, you know, but... Not like Adam was given a saw to saw. Adam, you, you take care of those overgrown branches and, and she'll gather the berries off the, the ends. That's not what we read. It's just they, they, they share in the same work. But the passage does make clear that there is an order here between male and female. Uh, because once again, the man names something. He names the woman. He's enthralled with her. He sees her as an equal, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. That's total equality. And yet he has a role in the ordering of God's creation that is somehow above her. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. That's controversial. I'm walking into another minefield, but that's what I'm leaving for next week. All right? Um, we'll, because there's so many tentacles between chapter 2 and chapter 3 we could be here all day. But it's absolutely impossible to fully appreciate chapter 3 if we ignore this fact. So that's why I'm going to leave the depth of that discussion until next week. But it's one of these many different pieces of connective tissue. What's important here is that men and women are fundamentally equal in value. They're fundamentally equal in substance but they complement each other in their role. They're not clones. And that sets up the paradigm for marriage as the most fundamental of human relationships. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So this becomes the, the pattern by which all other intimate human relationships are judged in the Bible. The most fundamental relationship is a marriage between one man and one woman. The incompatibility of animals rules out all sorts of perversions that have been practiced throughout history. The special creation of woman for a man sets off the heterosexual union as the basis for marriage. The fact that one single 
not good situation is remedied by one woman establishes monogamy as the standard against polygamy or any other variation. The companionship of marriage, then, is marked by the creation of a new family, a unit that has an identity separate from the parents. It's marked by unity. It's marked by equality that can be described as one flesh. And that one flesh is, is pictured for us in two ways. It's, it's, it's pictured in the sexual relationship, but it's also pictured in children. But those are merely pictures of an underlying spiritual reality that Jesus made clear that God himself is the one who creates. None of this is to say, though, that the only human companionship that matters is the companionship in marriage. That is the most basic companionship in the sense that it is the foundation for every other human relationship. It's a norm. Most human beings throughout history have shared in it, but not all. And so for those who are single, I I want to encourage you that Adam was perfectly cared for. He was perfectly provided for. And he had everything he needed with God before there was a woman. God brought him a woman at the right time for him in God's good plan. When God decided that it wasn't good for man to be alone, Adam was blissfully unaware that this was a not good situation. Adam was content. It was God who recognized something needed to change. Adam could simply trust God and enjoy God's presence. I'm not saying that if you're single, you have to just sit back and wait for God to make you a woman or a man. I'm simply pointing out that Adam wasn't going around fretting why he wasn't married yet. He could trust in God's goodness. We also know that part of our companionship with humans goes beyond marriage for the simple fact that they created a family, and brothers and sisters are companions also. We share in a gigantic human family, and these other human relationships matter. And for those who are Christians, we know that our fellow Christians are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're not connected simply by descent from Adam, but also by adoption by the blood of Christ. And so we have a deeper connection with each other to form the basis of companionship. It isn't a replacement for marriage, but it's a part of God's good plan for us. And so lean into your Christian relationships. And that's true for married people as well, but but especially for the single. Learn to treat the men like your brothers and the women like your sisters and Learn together to find satisfaction in Christ. If you do, I think you won't even need to feel like you're missing anything. And, and then one day, if God decides you're missing something, well, maybe there will be a nice surprise. Just don't expect it to appear suddenly in the morning, but 
um, trust in God. There's something about companionship that matters. There's something about the purpose for which God put mankind here that is incomplete without each other. Our purpose needs each other. So how do we understand this? This creation, care, cultivation, commandment, companionship, working together to give us a sense of purpose, an idea of meaning. Well, we know it starts with God. He's the only character in the beginning of the passage. He is the one creating. He's the one providing for us. It's not the other way around. He gives us a job, but he doesn't do that before he does the same work. And then there's this pivot from the emphasis being squarely on God with man coming more into relief, and that's when he's given the job. That's when he's given a commandment, a commandment that's going to demand trust, and that's when he gets a helper for a companion. So if we look at two details in those five C's, one that runs throughout the passage and one that's right in the middle, I, I think they are sort of like the, the focal point and the thread that hold this all together. The thread running through this passage is who God is. Last week, we noticed that God didn't have a name. In all of the Babylonian and Akkadian and Sumerian myths, the gods had names. But in Genesis 1, it's just God, the God. He doesn't need a name because he's one of a kind, totally unique. But in verse 4, out of nowhere, God has a name. He is now the Lord God. Did you know that was a name? Lord. It's not a title. Not when it's written with small capital letters like that. When it's written in small caps, it stands for the divine name, Yahweh. And there are historical reasons why most Bible translations make it Lord in small caps rather than writing Yahweh. I won't get into that now. We can talk, though. Hit me up if you want. But God's name is Yahweh. And it means something like, he is, which is the perfect name for a God who is one of a kind and has no peer. Who is your God? You could imagine an Egyptian asking an Israelite, and that Israelite glancing around, grimacing at a symbol of Egyptian cult around his neighbor's neck, and dropping his eyes at the sight of a temple to Isis in the distance, and then looking up and smiling. My God is he who actually exists. If your God is Yahweh, the other gods are nothing. The thing about the name Yahweh, though, is that it's used almost exclusively in the Bible in the community of God's people the people in covenant with him. Moses had to ask God his name when God called Moses to free his people. It was the name by which the Israelites would worship him. So when the name Yahweh appears here, it suggests that God has gone beyond merely creation in chapter 1. He's making a community. He is building a covenant people for himself. And the use, I think, of this double identifier, Lord God, it's really rare in the Bible. It does not come up very often, and almost all of them are right here. But it's used here, I think, because he is God, the God, the one over all of creation, over all of human beings. 
and the man and the woman become the progenitors of all human beings. And he is Yahweh, the one calling a community of worshipers into fellowship with him. That was the design from the beginning. Only in that perfect design, all of humanity would be part of his covenant community, his family of worshipers. But there's something right in the middle of the passage, too. And it brings this into relief. The job the man was given was to cultivate the garden, yes. It was, I believe, to transform earth into Eden. But what does the text say? It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Work it and take care of it. Interestingly, these two words, they can definitely mean to work at something and to take care of something. But they can also mean, in fact, they often mean something quite different. Work can mean serve, as in serving the many false gods or serving the one true God. Take care can be keep in the sense of keeping God's commandments. There's one place in the Bible, I believe just one other place where these two words come together. And it's describing the Levites, that group of God's people, the Israelites, who would be responsible for maintaining the tabernacle in the wilderness and later the temple. So, do you see? We have God's covenant name, Yahweh, being used with language reminiscent of the tabernacle. There's the forming of God's good, uh, forming of a people for God's good purposes. Eden wasn't just a garden. Eden was a temple. It was a place where the people of God could meet with God. It was a place where the people of God could commune with God and could enjoy God. Transforming the earth into Eden meant extending the worshipful enjoyment of God's presence to the ends of the world. It was a work that could not be done alone, but even if it could, it would defeat the purpose because God was not making individual persons. He was making a people, a family, a community of worshipers. So do you want to know why you're here? I mean, it's been said many times, it's been said in many ways, but one of the most famous is the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The first question of that catechism is, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what's the main point of why any person exists? And here's the answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The point of any person, you included, is to worship God and to enjoy God. God 
wants your joy. And your joy is found in the worship of him because that's how he created you. When Genesis 2, 4 through 25, teaches that God from the beginning desired a covenant community with us, that's with us. It's plural. So he gave us companionship so that we might worship him as many come together as one and so that we can extend his reign and worship to the ends of the earth. Now, that's not what the world looks like right now, is it? And maybe you're thinking that's not what my life looks like. The world doesn't look this way because of what happens in chapter 3. We'll get to that. The promise of an ever-growing Eden full of loved, provided for, working, worshiping, Uh, followers of Yahweh was lost, at least for a time, as we'll see. But that doesn't mean that our purpose is lost. We are still made in that same image, and we are still made with that chief end, to worship and enjoy God forever. But the world is full of people who have rejected that purpose for themselves. They do not enjoy God. They do not worship God. In fact, the story of most of Genesis and most of Scripture is God embarking on a rescue mission to bring these stray, would-be worshipers back to him again. And if that's you, if you feel like your life is out of sync with God's purpose for you, like you're floating along and wondering what this is all here for, this is your purpose. This is it. And there's a way to get back to it through God's perfect rescuer, Jesus Christ. If you have found purpose in worshiping God and enjoying him, can I tell you some exciting news? The Eden Project is not over. Look at Matthew 28, 18 through 20. You can turn there if you want. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus is sending his people to the ends of the earth. Why? To seek worshipers. To gather all these scattered nations together into one new people, the people of God. Jesus is rebuilding Eden. He is recultivating the paradise that was lost. And once again, his people are asked to join the effort. Brothers and sisters in Jesus, we have a mission 
We have a purpose. We have a calling. We are worshipers of God. We are enjoyers of God. But as those who love and enjoy God, we love and enjoy seeing others love and enjoy God. So we go. And we tell. And that's what it's all about. Let's pray. Father, we... uh, We pray that you would give us the encouragement that your goals in creation have not been completely lost, but that you are hard at work and have been hard at work at bringing them to full realization. May we claim our full purpose in you. We pray that those who feel like they are wandering aimlessly and purposelessly through this life would find their purpose in how you created us. And with those who have been called by Jesus Christ and are known by your name, be diligent in seeing your purpose carried out and extended to the farthest reaches of this earth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand and sing.